Hey, come on in. Hey guys, my name is Aaron Sarkis. Basically, my story is um, I was uh, raised in another denomination, and it was really easy for me because I learned from a young age, you know, do this, don't do this, or don't do this and do this. Um, and you'll go to heaven, you know, I think that's, you know, what a lot of people experience. Uh, before I started out um, on this, you know, being a Christian, this journey that I'm on right now, um, I was really political. I I was a blog follower. I mean, I, you know, I loved going to church because I thought God had a, a, a good side and a bad side. And every time I used a bad word, oh, there's a check mark there. But he went to church, oh, so it evens out. So, you know, while it worked for a lot of people, um, it didn't really work for me. Um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of guilt, a lot of rules, um, and it kind of shaped me into this really, really good uh, rule follower. That's the kind of Christian I was. I was I didn't let it bleed out into into my life. I didn't let it bleed out into my finances, my work. I didn't let you know Jesus bleed into any other part of my life. And and um, I just you know, unfortunately, that's how I was raised. And you know. That works for some people. Um, it just really didn't work for me. I, I was left with a lot of questions. I met my wife, Jessica, and, and, and like I said, she started to plant this little seed. She said, come on, come to Providence um, in late 2011. And um, I thought, y'all crazy. Uh, you actually talk to people outside of church. So the, the series that they were going through uh, was in Philippians. And there's a, you know, Paul says to the Philippians, hey, our citizenship is, is in heaven. So that is the first seed that was um, that was kind of, you know kind of grew in me like man maybe I should start reading this Bible and start yielding to the Word and start letting it form me instead of just going you know for an hour a week and so I started reading the Bible um, it was a very hard thing because I don't you know I'm like everybody else I don't really understand a lot of it um, so I read the story about Paul and I was like man this guy was so this Paul guy was. He was so zealous for the law. He was such a rule follower. I was like, man, he, he must have been a great Christian then, right? You know that, you know, in Philippians, uh, you know, he says, you know, all that is loss. Um, he counts all that as loss. And, man, I just came to this point where, man, all that stuff that I grew up with is, i got to count it as a loss. I've got to get to this guy named Jesus, you know? I had so much Pharisee in me from judging other people, from... You know, the things that I said, the things that I thought, the things that I didn't do. Um, I had so much Pharisee in me. And when I read this story about Paul, I didn't I didn't know Paul's story. I was never taught it. So Paul says in um, chapter 3, verse 7, he goes on to say, But whatever uh, gain I had uh, counted for loss, uh, counted as a loss for, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know, if he's telling the Philippians... His whole resume is lost for this Christ guy. I was like, man, maybe I'm not taking Christ seriously enough. If, if Christ can use Paul, I mean, he can definitely use me. So Paul, something just in me changed, you know. I, I The way, you know, I look back now, four or five, six years ago, and I cringe at a lot of the things I thought. I cringe at a lot of the things I said. I cringe at a lot of the ways I've treated people. I've been touched in a way that's just, um, it's really hard to explain. Um, long story short, you know, I, I just, um, right now I'm in a place where I'm just so, um, I'm on fire for this, for this Jesus guy. I just, it sounds so hokey to say because you sound, you hear it so many times and, and it's lost its meaning. But, um, right now I wake up every day 
And I just want to, I want to like glorify Christ. I want to glorify Christ while I'm brushing my teeth. I want to glorify Christ while I'm driving my car, while I'm at work, while I'm going to get fast food. I want to glorify Christ in everything I do. And I fail, you know, more times than I like to admit. But um, right now I'm just, um, I'm just so filled with, with this love for this. I've never felt it before. And, um, and I just, I don't know. So. Thank you, Aaron. Would you guys just take a minute where you are and just uh, take a deep breath if you feel comfortable doing so. Maybe just close your eyes and just invite you to take the next few moments before you grab your phone, your Bible, just to take a breath. Think back over this day. And would you just quietly in your own heart, your own head, would you just finish this sentence? Lord, thank you. And then perhaps looking in this moment, the things you brought with you to our worship gathering, those things that are weighing heavy on your shoulders, weighing heavy on your heart, still just quietly as you take a breath, would you finish this next sentence and say, Lord, would you? So, Lord, I say amen. I'm grateful for your presence among us, your presence in us, and your presence at work through us in our families, our neighborhoods, and even to the ends of the earth. Lord, I say thank you for this people. Many of us who aren't here this evening, many of us who are here, we're so grateful that you are where we are, present to us, Inviting us each step to wake up, to see that your hand and your heart is there for us. So Lord, I say, would you move in us, stir in us, cause us to turn back to you, cause us to maybe turn anew for the first time ever, the first time in a long time, that this church that you've united together would follow Jesus together for the sake of his kingdom in our world, that your will would be done on earth and in our lives as you would have it in heaven. So thank you for this time. It's yours. We are yours. Pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are Bibles in front of you. Would you grab one of them things? Ruth is um, very early on in the Bible. It's after a book called Judges. Because where we're at, this story of Ruth takes place after a historical um, period. 
ruled by these people called judges. So you'll see Ruth there. If you're a Bible on your phone type of person, uh, you can swipe there, and I won't know if you're playing Candy Crush. I'll just think that you're following on in Ruth with us. Is Candy Crush still a thing? I don't even know. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry, Lynette. You know what? I don't play games on my phone, so there's that. Happy birthday. Off to a bad start. Hey, um, I want to tell you another story. This is a goofy story. This is an old story. This is a preacher kind of story that you may have heard before. But it's a story about the man, a man on a deserted island, a deserted island, yes? And this man, as I might do, screamed and hollered at God for him to rescue him. God, rescue me from this deserted island. And so the story goes that he prayed and he ate coconuts and he waited and waited. And then lo and behold, a deep sea fisherman boat comes tooting along on the horizon and it comes closer and closer and it spies this man on the deserted island and he starts to wave his arms and say, Hey friend, you want to hop in on my boat? And what does the man on the deserted island do but say, You know what? Thanks, but I have faith in God and he's going to save me. And so the deep sea fisherman looked at him like you were the biggest idiot I've ever seen in my life. But okay, I'm going to go get some, you know, swordfish or whatever they go fishing for. And he goes along. So this man set to praying and praying. And then, of course, he goes to sleep. And some nights later, he is awakened in his sleep from the big foghorn of the enormous Navy tanker. And it's right there at the shore of the deserted island. It puts down a ladder on the side of the stern. And they say, ahoy there. Friend, we're here to rescue you. Come on, we found you. Come on up. No thanks, guys. I'm waiting on God. I have faith in Him. Fully relying on God. Amen. See you guys later. And then, you know, if you've heard this goofy story before, he waits and weeks turn into months. And then finally he sees a helicopter going through and it circles around and it spots this guy and drops the rope ladder down. They say, hey man, come on, we're here, we found you, Let's, it's time to go, we're here to rescue you. And of course, you know by now what he says, no thanks, got it, God will rescue me. And so he waits and he prays and he waits and he prays and he waits and he prays and he dies. And so... He goes and he stands before the Lord and the first thing out of his mouth is, God, what is the deal, man? Dude, I prayed and I kind of fasted by default. I mean, that's supposed to be a thing, right? And he's sitting there and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God looks at him and says, dude, I sent you the fishing boat. I sent you the Navy tanker and I sent you the helicopter. What do you want me to do? And when I think about that old goofy preacher's story, I think about how Naomi and Ruth were on a deserted island also. Y'all remember how our story started. They were isolated. They were facing death. They were crying out to God. Ruth was only just being introduced to God. And she got her introduction from Naomi's crying and bitter pain. As she cried out to God, because why? Well, they had experienced a famine. No food to eat. So Naomi's family packed up and they left the only home they knew, the only family they knew, the only support they knew. And they took a long and dangerous journey to a new land. And just when she thought things were looking up, her two sons grow 
But then they find that they're going to grow up without a father because Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. We don't know how, we don't know why, but we know he dies. And so Naomi is beginning to just feel the brokenness seep in because she says, I don't know how we're going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to provide for myself, but at least I have these two sons and they'll grow up and they'll help me out. But then, of course, the story goes laid out in that very first chunk of that very first chapter. Her two sons, Melon and Kilion, die. And all of a sudden, that deserted island, she's feeling the heat. She's feeling the despair. She's feeling the pain of hunger and desperation. And she's seeing the safety net get ripped out from under her. But she's not completely alone because her two sons, they took wives. And y'all remember? The first one you know is Ruth. And the second one, do y'all remember her name? Orpah. Good job. Some of you wanted to say Oprah. And that's okay. That's not Oprah. It's Orpah. Naomi wasn't totally alone, though she felt alone. She had Ruth and Orpah. And so she says, look, I've emptied. I thought I was empty when I left. I'm totally empty now. But she says, I've got a better chance to make it back in my hometown, Bethlehem. Maybe it had been a decade or more, but she's going to make the long, dangerous journey back. And Ruth and Orpah are along the road with her until Naomi turns around. And y'all remember what she did. She begged and she pleaded. And she says, look, my island is a hopeless and lost cause. I am done And she releases them. She blesses them. She says, you know, I pray that my God, the Lord, would bless you, would give you another husband. I hope that he'll give you a better lot in life that I got. But as for me, it looks like God has turned his hand and his back on me. So I'm going back and I'm going to die. And I'm going with nothing left. He's taken it all. He has not rescued me. He has broken me. And she sets off, but she looks behind and Orpah did the sensible thing, the good thing, and not perhaps the wrong thing. But Ruth does an extraordinary thing. And as Naomi's bitterly wiping the tears away from her eyes, she feels this tugging on her garment, and it's Ruth saying, no way. And Ruth says, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. This is an incredible declaration. And it's an extraordinarily dumb thing at the surface. Because she was hitching her wagon to a woman who is penniless, to a woman who is familyless and hopeless. But Ruth went because Ruth knew that she had no chance without her. And Ruth, if Ruth, the story is a love story, it starts first with Ruth's love to Naomi, a woman who had no shot, no chance, but for this woman, Ruth, who showed extraordinary love in an unfortunate and broken circumstances. So then we enter into this page-turning story, right? There's angels coming down, and then God steps in and says, Naomi, don't you worry, I'm here to rescue you, right? And then she gets a vision from the Lord. She has dreams in the night, and God says, go to this field. There's a man called Boaz. He's going to be big in this story. It's going to be a bestseller. It's going to wind up in the Bible. It's going to be a big deal, I promise you. Go do this. No. There's no visions. There's no signs. There's no 
kings or priests or prophets. Ruth is a story you know of ordinary people doing ordinary things to survive, but they do it with extraordinary love. Y'all remember that word? Love that we've been talking about, that extraordinary, faithful, loyal, powerful love that we see throughout this book. Hesed. Y'all say it. (coughs) Hesed. You with me? We're just starting, guys. Let's do this. It's ordinary people in their ordinary life. But if they dusted for God's fingerprints on their lives, as we've talked about before, they'd wind up seeing that God was always at work behind the scenes. God was always sending the fishing boat. He was sending the tanker. He was sending the helicopter. And what's really extraordinary about these ordinary people in their ordinary lives is they partnered with what God was doing behind the scenes. And it made all the difference. Because Ruth isn't just an ordinary story about people doing extraordinary things. Uh, doing things out of extraordinary love. It's not just a story about how God is working. It's not just a story about God is inviting us to partner with him and ride the wave of what he's doing. It's also a story of renewal. Because the empty Naomi, the desperate Ruth, and this man Boaz, they carry their broken pieces to each other. They carry their broken pieces to God. And we end this story the next two weeks to see about how God is putting it back together. God's rescue, though, comes from things like farming. It comes in ways of being, so to speak, in the right place at the right time. And it comes in a marriage. And it even comes in a strange legal proceeding that we're going to look at tonight in Ruth chapter Four. We see newness out of brokenness in the ordinary ways. And so the question for tonight as we look at this legal procedure, as we look at how God brings this newness out of brokenness, it begs the question, are you awake to the story in which you find yourself in? Are we ordinary people? I don't see any presidents or important VIP people, no offense, you beautiful folks. We're ordinary people. We do ordinary jobs. We do ordinary things. We do ordinary things just to make it through the day. But the role of each other in each other's lives, the role that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz find themselves in is helping to keep people awake to, as Robin preached so many weeks ago, that Yahweh is in this place. Yahweh is writing a story, and all of our stories fit against that backdrop of renewal. And we can partner with Him by being awake, or we can just continue to go on in our ordinary existences and turn back on the road, just like Orpah, and do the safe thing and go back. Or we can risk, and we can step out, and we can see that God is at work every little day in all the ordinary things. And so today, it's not a huge bing-bang explosion conclusion. It's a seemingly boring conversation about legal stuff from an ancient world. But if we dust with God, for God's fingerprints with me, you'll see that this is incredible, powerful newness being wrought from the brokenness. So read with me. Uh, follow along here as we look at this story. Ruth 
chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. This is where we're going to be for the next couple minutes. So meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate, and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Y'all remember what happened before? We had this midnight rendezvous encounter after the barley harvest, and Ruth says, a great risk, she says, look, marry me. I know that you're my relative. I know that you're our only hope out of this mess. And you know that I'm a godly woman who is trying to make good on my commitment to Naomi. She's on a deserted island. I'm her only shot. And this is the time to make an incredible choice. And so Boaz says, whoo, oh, wow, okay. And Ruth risked, and Boaz responds. And Boaz says, I will do for you what you say. And so chapter 3, it happens in this evening after the threshing floor, a good party at the end of the harvest. And he says, I'm going to rush off first thing in the morning and I'm going to go do this. So chapter 3, where we see it was midnight, we're right there. Chapter 4, that very first thing in the morning, just as Boaz said. Chapter 3, there was this private encounter. Now he's going to take it public to all the respected people in their village. And so here is where we find Boaz at the town gate. What does a town gate look like? Why would they go to the town gate? Here's a picture of an ancient town gate. It's where people came and went. Boaz owned fields, worked in the fields. Where were the fields? Just like the fields in our town. You got to get some drive time out behind you. You got to go to the Aaron's house, right? They live by some fields. Every person who lives in this village are coming and going out of the gates. They live in the walled city. You see the walls. And there's the gate there. There's the outer wall, the inner wall. Now what you don't see in this picture is just in our perspective, right here where that path continues, there will be these little cutouts, these little alcoves. And they were for guards or they were for gatherings. So what Boaz does is he goes to the town gate first thing in the morning. It's like parking yourself at 75, and you're going to find somebody before they hop on the freeway. If you're going to see somebody, you're going to see him coming down there. So he's looking for this other guardian redeemer. Does your Bible say kinsman redeemer? No? Well, it's the same thing. He's looking for the kinsman redeemer that he had mentioned the night before. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Now, Boaz had said last night, Ruth, I would love to help you out. Seriously, I would. But here's the deal. There's another relative, and by relative, he means like a cousin. Somebody in the extended family of the family that Ruth married into that gets first dibs on the land and you. The widow. Now, does that sound strange? Yes, but it's part of this custom, part of the laws that we're about to look at. So they're at the town gate, not just to find this guy, but because this is where business happened. They met at the town gate because they didn't roll up to a conference table with the water pitchers and the coffee to sign some deals. 
They met in here. They gathered here. There's social activity here. There are business meetings happening here. So Boaz sits down and, oh, wouldn't you know it? Here's this other guy I told Ruth about last night. Come over here. He sits down. And what is this guy's name? Well, see, that's the thing. We have all these names in this story. But what's curious about this is actually in this Hebrew language, so I've read, the name of this guy amounts to basically scholars, dead serious, like high-minded, degreed scholars, call him Mr. So-and-so. Because in the original language, it's some kind of um, turn of phrase that would amount to our, like, Joe Schmo. It was a rhyming thing, and they just have this guy who is a guy for the rest of history as we know it, who enters into Ruth's story about these big and powerful characters with names that we know, and then this other kinsman redeemer comes along, and he's just Mr. So-and-so. And they have a whole legal procedure with Mr. So-and-so. Hang on to that. So Boaz didn't just take old Mr. So-and-so. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. Y'all see that in verse 2? And they did so. So then he said to Mr. So-and-so, the guardian redeemer, Naomi, you know Naomi, you remember her? Who has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So these are probably cousins. They're not brothers. They're not super close, but close enough to where there's something they can do about it. Well, what are they going to do about it? I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy that land in the presence of all these seated here and in the presence of all the elders of my people. He got these ten elders to basically be a kind of civil jury. This happened a lot in a tribal Israelite culture, okay? This is a new Israel that's being formed here. This is, this is before they even have kings, right? So what they had is in each of these tribes, each of these clans, the older and respected men would gather together, they would witness this, and they would ratify what's going on. So Boaz pitches to Mr. So-and-so, hey, you remember Naomi? Yeah, she left a long time ago. Well, that piece of land that our, her old husband, Elimelech, who died, had, dude, it's just sitting there. It's overgrown. We just had this great harvest. Nobody was there getting after it. Dude, this is yours. You get first dibs, so I think you should buy this thing. Now, look what he says at the end of verse 4. If you'll redeem it, that is, buy it back, Do so, but if you will not, tell me so I will know. He says, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Now, this is a win-win for Mr. So-and-so, because you couldn't just go down to the land store and buy you some land. Land was something that was kept in family circles. New patches of land didn't just show up all the time. And so if you had the means to buy it, it will return on your investment now that this famine is over because God has begun to work newness out of brokenness. And there was a famine, but now the barley has produced. And so this is a great time to buy a piece of land. And he says, I will redeem it, he said. 
So what is this law about redemption? We talked about it briefly last week. Let's talk about it briefly this week. The law relates to that land, okay? And the law is called the kinsman redeemer law. Let's look here at Leviticus. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn just for a moment. We want to keep moving at Leviticus chapter 25. You see, the law in Israel was for all kinds of life, civic, business, religious, social, all of it. And so part of the law that was written in was to protect the poor people who basically got foreclosed on. And so here's the law. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, is Naomi poor? Naomi, by the way, as a woman, as a widow, doesn't even actually own this land. It's very strange that Boaz says, hey, Naomi's land. I wonder if Boaz is saying, dude, if we don't buy this thing, Naomi, who doesn't even own it, she doesn't have a prayer. It's another way of ordinary people showing extraordinary love to look out for the least and forgotten. So if this person becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Well, Naomi's husband died, her sons died, and so this guy, Mr. So-and-so, is the closest redeemer. So that's that law that's in view here. Now, why would this law be such a big deal? Well, it's, protect, it's to protect this poor family. Now, a real striking question is, why hasn't this happened already? How long has this been? How many people have not given a rip about Naomi? Who knows? Maybe they're sitting there just trying to figure out the rest of their land because, hello, we've had a famine here. But it sets the scene, it sets the table two ways. Number one, it gives Boaz an opportunity to step in. And the second thing it does to set the scene is it gives you this tension that says, man, is Mr. So-and-so going to do this? Because I thought Boaz was a pretty stand-up dude. There's this tension that enters in. And you're wondering, man, why did we spend all this time seeing the great love and hesed of Ruth and Boaz making each other stronger together? Well, Boaz isn't done. Look what he says in his big pitch in verse 5. Oh, by the way, Mr. So-and-so, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. <gasps> This is where Mr. So-and-so goes, oh, a Moabite? Now, we know that Ruth's character has been talked about throughout the town. But we also know that Ruth is not a homegrown girl. She's a Moabite. And by the way, look what he says, the dead man's widow. So if you're going to get this land, there's another law that's involved here. And you also need to get this widow. You need to take care of Naomi. You need to take care of Ruth. And in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, Mr. So-and-so ain't got a name in our Bible. But it was a big deal to keep the name of Elimelech going. 
because he didn't have a Facebook profile with a thousand friends that could get his name out there. He didn't have Twitter followers to have a platform. When you died, when your relatives died, it was as if somebody had taken a big eraser in the history of Israel and just etched it on out and wiped it away. And it was the worst and most tragic thing. For your name to be blotted out. When you read the Psalms, you talk about your name. It will never be blotted. It endures throughout the generations. When you think about all those genealogies, you read a book like Numbers. If you flip back, there's a book in your Bible called Numbers. And it's about all the people who were named among God's people. When you look at the genealogy in this book, there's names of people. The worst thing is for your name to be forgotten. And what's incredible about what's going on here is God is at work in the choices moving, pushing, and inviting Boaz, a named individual with a great name in the clan, to go a step further beyond these ancient laws and extend his name to these ordinary, penniless, powerless widows. We would have never known Naomi and Ruth's name and example and faithfulness if Mr. So-and-so had just purchased the land and left them to go and die in the back corner of somebody's field trying to glean something for the day. This is tense moment. So Boaz cleverly says, oh, by the way, you don't just get the land, you get Ruth. And we've seen Ruth risk. And here's where Boaz begins to take the center stage finally in this story. And he is risking this woman to another man. Will she be taken care of? Will this name of Elimelech and this family on a deserted island persist? The law that he's appealing to is called the Leveret Law. We don't have time to look at it. It will be up here on the screen briefly. I just want to look at the first bit of it. You can write down, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. The Leveret Law, that strange name, everybody say Leveret, Leveret Law, was this. This is another way of looking out for the down and out people. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Y'all remember the land? Keep it in the family. Well, how about your wives? Keep it in the family. This is a very different culture. This is a culture in which if this man dies, who gets his name without a son? Nobody. So what happens is she goes to the next in line. And so she goes to this brother-in-law. And then whatever child she has is not Mr. Brother-in-law. It's Mr. Original Husband. And it's a way of making sure his name endures through generations and his line continues because the worst thing to happen in Israel is that it totally disappears. So now we've got this leveret law. And here's what's funny, by the way, should I tell you? Is Boaz and Mr. So-and-so a brother of Elimelech or are they a relative of Elimelech? 
They're a relative. We don't even know what kind of stinking relative he is. But here's Boaz, who's an ordinary man, engaged in an ordinary, everyday legal procedure, and he's going to do an extraordinary thing and step out and say, Dude, I don't care what the letter of the law says. I want the spirit of the law because God cares about the Naomi's and Ruth's who are starving in this world. And guess what? They're on a deserted island. And he may not tractor beam suck them up and and save them. He's going to send deep sea fishermen to come by. And I think I'm one of these deep sea fishermen. I think that God has brought these two women back to my place. And they just so happen to be in my field. I just so happen to notice her. She just so happened to be the strongest and bravest and riskiest woman I have ever seen in my life. And it just so happens that I don't want to miss an opportunity to get close to God's heart. And risk something for his name, for his kingdom. And go above and beyond and outdo Mr. So-and-so. In God-like chesed love. And this is what's at stake here. It's ordinary, but it's extraordinary. Your lives are ordinary. But every moment, there's an extraordinary thing that can happen. You never know what little thing just might turn and have kingdom consequences. You don't know the kinds of money you give that go to the Middle East, that go to Russia, that go to El Paso and Juarez, so people like Naomi can eat, so people like Ruth can get a second chance, so people who are burnt out in Tajikistan, do you know that you're supporting ministry in Tajikistan, can hear hear about the Jesus that has liberated the world and can hear about the Abba, his father, who loves them and inviting them to do more kingdom work in their villages, in their places. And this little church kicked out a third of our budget last year to these people because we didn't have to fix the roof. Every dollar, that's just finances. Every conversation is pulsing with an opportunity to encourage, to build up. Every opportunity through work. Well, I'm not a pastor like you, Adam. I'm not a professional Christian that just reads all day. Like I read all day. Give me a break. Every conversation I have, every conversation you have, every opportunity you have to not look away, but to look at somebody in the eye and say, I see kingdom image bearing potential in you. I see my children who are stressing me out, but I have an opportunity in ministry to show them the way of Jesus 24 seven. God help me. I don't have kids, but I have relationships that matter. However ordinary it is, as much time as I don't have kids, as much time as I don't have a husband, is time that I get to do things that people with husbands and kids don't. Every opportunity, we need a you, not a somebody else. We need our church, not another church. We got about 100 people in our church. But this 100 people, when we're together, We ask of God, what is it that if we don't do, nobody else will? What what is it that if we don't look around and are trying to be present, and it is hard. You can't program being on mission in the neighborhood, right? But if we are present, if we're listening, God, what are you doing? And then say, God, I'm going to step out and actually do it. 
Who knows? Our days are saturated with kingdom potential. Whether it's a business procedure, whether it's a marriage proposal, it's saturated with the fingerprints of God and we need to find our stories within His. So this is what's incredible here. Here's the kingdom moment. Here's the tipping point. Boaz, Mr. So-and-so. And what happens here is this. At this, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. What he's saying is this. If Ruth, like the law says, has a kid. She hasn't yet, but if she does, that little kid lines up at the end of the feeding line with all my others. And daddy only has enough land and resources to go around. And so we see often in our Bible, we read it today in the prodigal son. We see this issue of inheritance coming up. And you see this issue of brothers and sisters fighting. Do we see this in our lives? It's what makes a tragic death even more tragic. What did we read in Lent? Was that yesterday? About, dude, don't bother yourself. This guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, tell my brother to split my inheritance. And Jesus says, Dude, life is more than many possessions. And he tells a story about the guy that goes out and he wants to fill up this barn and say, I'm pretty good, man. I've got all this. Look at me. And I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And he says, no. God appears and says, dude, your life is required of you right now. What are you going to do? You've pissed away your life with possessions. And I use that word intentionally because this is the message, this is the story every moment of our day. And it's drowning out the kingdom potential to leverage our good, our time, our resources, our gifts for his kingdom, not the kingdom of the world. So what makes him gulp is an opportunity for Boaz to step out. And it's an opportunity which the narrator says, you know what? This guy did an okay thing. If 99 guys lined up, they would do the same thing. But then there's one Boaz. If 99 Orpahs were on the road with Naomi, they would have turned around and gone home and not gone with bitter old Naomi. But Ruth was the one. Boaz is the one. Because sometimes love calls us to act, even if it costs even if it makes us uncomfortable. Boaz, don't look forward about what he's going to get. Look at what he's standing to lose. He's going to put up all of this money to get another field, to hire more hands, to have more of it cultivated, to have more of it risk another famine that's come through. He's going to take on another wife in his home, and with her comes Naomi. Because guess what? Ruth said, wherever she's going, I'm going. And so if I'm going here, she's coming with me. So now this dude has got a mother-in-law, another one. Who knows if if he had been married before? But he's inviting more resources, more. But love calls us to act even if it costs. And even if it makes us uncomfortable. 
One of the words that came up, um, the leaders of this church, the missional community leaders, and then uh, Jason and Becky, the leaders who were with people, they came and we had a retreat day, a straight up retreat day. We didn't go brainstorming and do a summit, and I didn't go and download a bunch of information on them. We listened to the Lord, we looked at the scriptures, we prayed together, we ate together, we laughed together. Because, you know, we want to lead from a place where we're trying to hear what God is up to. We're trying to be filled with what He's up to. And what really was crazy is the word that I kept hearing was this word uncomfortable. That sometimes Jesus, to follow Him, means you follow Him into places that are uncomfortable. You follow Him into places where tax collectors and sinners show up. And it may cost you your reputation. It costs Jesus His. It may cost you some of your money. It cost Jesus his whole life. But love calls us to step out and act. And it calls us to go to the tables of sinners and even to care for the powerless and broken. So this whole legal transaction that we've spent a lot of time on is to try to unpack this ancient culture of who gets the right to help the powerless. Who gets to go beyond the letter of the law and deeper into the spirit? So here's what happens as we wrap that section up in verse 7. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. Now here's what that means. I don't know. But it's what they did. And so he gave it to Boaz, and this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. They didn't sign on the dotted line. He picked up his sandal and handed it to the other. I think we said that Sid would have lost a lot of sandals in his line of work as a salesman. He would have been giving his stinky old things to everybody up and down West Texas. So this is what they did. And so verse 8, as we wind down to the, the brass tacks of this whole thing, we built this front porch so we can get down to the redemption. And verse 8, the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal, he hands it to Boaz, and Boaz has a choice to do an incredible, extraordinary thing in this seemingly ordinary situation. Boaz doesn't have a word from the Lord. Boaz doesn't have a dream or a vision. No angel came to Boaz, but he was so wrapped up in God's sacrificial love that he's going to take that sandal and by taking that sandal he's going to take Ruth and Naomi into his home. All the seeds that were sown literally when the barley harvest began, when Naomi and Ruth came to town, months had passed, nothing had happened. They were ordinarily going about their life, and it comes down to this pivotal moment, and Boaz isn't even the hero. It's God who said, I'm never going to give up on Ruth and Naomi. Naomi thought she wanted to give up on me. Naomi had to have it out. Naomi had to hurt. Naomi had to be bitter. But Naomi and Ruth, through that bitterness, through that brokenness, came to a faith that didn't accept easy answers, that didn't accept all the things that our Christian brothers and sisters want to post on Facebook saying, well, God has a plan. They say, no, it's pain, but I'm going to still trust God. I don't know what his plan is, but I'm not going to give up on him. And then when it seems like he's not 
doing anything. Perhaps he wants me to do something. So what does Naomi do? She says, Ruth, get out there. Now's the time. Let's do this. And so Ruth says, okay, I will. But then Ruth goes a step further and says, I'm going to risk everything to help Naomi. I'm going to outdo one another in covenant, God-like, hesed love. I'm going to put it all out there. And then Boaz, it's his turn. He puts everything out there. And he announced to all the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, named people, dead and buried in a foreign, faraway land forgotten by everyone they lived with in Moab. But he says their names. Mr. So-and-so slips back further out into the gate, and Boaz stands up, and he says, I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife. Because when she said, spread your corner of your wings over me, be my husband, protect me, marry me, she proposes to him. He, the next day in the public meeting, he is a symbol of how God has spread his wings over Ruth and says, Ruth, I told you I wasn't going to give up on you. You probably had no idea what you were doing on that road from Moab to Bethlehem when you clung to Naomi and said that, Yahweh, I'm yours. But it's starting here and now in an ordinary day, in an ordinary legal transaction, probably even 30 minutes after Boaz sat down. And Boaz stands up. He takes the land. He takes the wife so that he can also protect the line in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders who had seen so many of these things transpire before, they had never seen an extraordinary down-the-line relative who shouldn't have given a rip about them show so much compassion, so much sacrifice, but it's because Boaz probably learned it from Ruth. And so what do they do? Man, they bless Ruth. It's like a wedding toast. They stand up. And before the marriage even happens, they're so enthralled by these incredible people. And the first one they bless, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May Ruth the Moabite be Ruth the Israelite. And may Ruth not just be an Israelite, may she be up there with the Israelites par excellence, Leah and Rachel, who were the first matriarchs of our whole people, God's people, who gave birth to sons that became the twelve tribes of Israel sent to rescue the world. But tribes who were in jeopardy, of losing their way, of losing their place, so enter Ruth, and may she be blessed more than they can imagine. And they name her a foreigner with the insideist of insiders who built up the family of Israel. So then they get to Boaz, because let's be honest, man, 
Ruth is, is the one who set this thing and risked first, and Boaz tries to outdo her. But both of them, in some beautiful way, are pushing each other to be better. They're serving God. They're serving one another. And God is changing them through that process. So now it's Boaz's turn to get the wedding toast. May Boaz, you have standing in Ephaphtra and be famous in Bethlehem. Basically, it says, we're going to call a name. May your name be called out. Mr. So-and-so is snuck by, but Boaz, keep being awesome. <laughs> then finally, they work down in verse 12. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez. This is basically the chief number one dude of this tribe. He is their local hometown hero. May you be like that your family be so prominent, so important, that you'd be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar was a woman who was widowed, not once, but twice. Tamar had a pretty sketchy way, a pretty risky way, to partner with God. If you don't believe me, look at Genesis 38, tonight or tomorrow. But they're basically saying, would your offspring be a big deal in Israel? And so now what's left for next week and for Kathy as she comes and does the curtain call of this incredible story is, well, all these blessings be true. And also, what about Naomi? So as we close tonight, the question, not for next week, but for all the weeks has been, well, how is God bringing newness out of brokenness. So let's look at these points that I really want us to bring home the brass tacks. How is God bringing newness out of brokenness in this story? Because Boaz and Ruth partner with God by choosing the way of Hesed. The family line and family land are rescued. Boaz and Ruth's son, who we'll see next week, is grandfather to King David and ancestor to King Jesus. Don't lose the fact that the, it's not just their small family rescue operation. It ends up being all the families of the world who are rescued by these incredible people. Ruth, who was a widowed, penniless, childless outsider, is now fully incorporated into Israel and the family she set out to save. Ruth's name will get a mention in our Gospels as a matriarch of the family from which Jesus comes. So here's the fun part. When Ruth and Boaz set out their small-scale rescue operation of their broken family, they had no idea it was part of God's great rescue operation of this broken world. And finally for us, the stories of our lives are always set against the backdrop of God's great story of worldwide renewal. Your lives, though they're ordinary, though my lives are ordinary, they are saturated with kingdom potential. And I think about the fact that this is so because of what Peter says about all of us Ruths who are outside and now inside. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10, to 10, it's on your screen, but you are a chosen people. 
The world tells you you're unimportant people. You're cast off people. And he says you're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, off the deserted island, and into his wonderful light. Listen to this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once Ruth and Naomi were not part of a people, but now they are the people of God. Once they had not received mercy, but now they have received mercy. This is redemption. Once you were cast off, you were under a different deed, a different title. And we'll look at one more New Testament passage to try to nail home the redemption and renewal that God has wrought here in this little Old Testament book. Paul says it this way. We weren't a piece of land, but we were indebted and enslaved and belonging to another group. Paul says in Galatians 4, verses 3 to 7, We were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. We were Naomi's, we were Ruth's, we were We were fields that were overgrown. We were fields that were untouched. We were fields that were dying. We were fields that were rotting. We belonged. Our deed was stamped with Satan and sin and death. And we would have laid there and rotted away and wasted away. But God sends His Son in order to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as children. We were Ruth who were on the outside looking in. We had no family to belong to in a place that was foreign to us who were looking at no way to move forward. But now we might receive adoption into the family, not as friends, but children. And because you are children... God, the Father, has sent the Spirit of His Son. It's a whole-scale operation by the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, the Spirit into our hearts. And it cries out, Abba, Papa, Daddy, known, intimate, beloved Father, So you are no longer a slave. You're no longer a widow. You're no longer an addict. You're no longer a penniless, barren, frustrated, depressed, slave to the world, but a child of God. And if a child, then also an heir through God. An heir of God. And God delights to give you All of the inheritance, all of the riches that are incomparable, immeasurable, unapproachable, all filled to the brim with all the blessings of God because he bought you back when everyone thought you were worthless. So when your voice in your head says, I'm worthless, when the voice in your head says, I'm nothing, when the voice in your head says, I won't amount to anything, when the voice in your head says, there I go, I did it again, 
We have a spirit that can cry out and say, Abba, please silence this and let me hear the voice say, you are my child. You were bought with the price. I gave my son so that you can be my son, my daughter. The redemption that's here in Ruth is gospel redemption. When we had no hope, God sweeps in and he sacrifices and he gives us hope. He gives us life. This is redemption. This is a big deal. And when you become God's child, you get swept up into God's plan to renew the world. But we've got to remember that we were bought. We've got to have this perspective that our story is not just ours. It's for Him. That our story does not have a tragic ending. It has a glorious ending. Because one day we'll get to see our Abba face to face. The Abba that Jesus knew. The Abba that Jesus talked about. Who would pick up His cloak and run the distance to meet you on the horizon. And throw a party no matter how bad you messed it up. Jesus told us about an Abba who would buy and sell the farm just to embrace you again. This is the gospel. This is good news. And we've got to keep his story central as it informs our story. Father, we're so grateful for this beautiful story. We're grateful for... A more incredible conclusion next week. We're so grateful for how you love us when we were unlovable. And we are so grateful for how you show us how we can make a difference in this world. Not for our names, but for your great name. So Lord, now our prayer is we need you. We need you because we're broken and we don't see your newness yet. So may we seek you, cry out to you, and find you. In Jesus' name, amen. The pushing and shoving of the world is endless. We are pushed and shoved, and we do our fair share of pushing and shoving in our great anxiety. And in the middle of that, you have set down your beloved suffering son, who was like a sheep led to slaughter, who opened not his mouth. We seem not able So we ask you to create the spaces in our life where we may ponder his suffering and your summons for us to suffer with him, suspecting that suffering is the only way to come to newness. So we pray for your church in these Lenten days when we are driven to denial, not to notice the suffering, not to engage it, not to acknowledge it. So be the way of truth among us that we should not deceive ourselves, that we shall see the loss is indeed our gain. We give you thanks for that mystery from which we live. Go in peace.